Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Rajat Gupta was part of the global business elite, the head of McKinsey, a board member of Goldman Sachs, American Airlines, Procter & Gamble, and a philanthropist. But then in 2012, he was convicted of insider trading. He exhausted all his appeals and served two years in prison. Now he's written a book about his rise and fall entitled Rajat Gupta, Mind Without Fear. And he joins me now in our New York studio. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. You write that since your parents' death, you led a charmed life before the trial. Tell me a little about what you meant by that. What I meant by that is that, you know, I went to one of the best schools in India, Indian Institute of Technology, which is a great engineering school. I had the opportunity to go to Harvard Business School on full financial aid. You know, then I got my dream job at McKinsey & Company, and I spent 37 years there. I... uh, was an unlikely choice, but I became the head of McKinsey at age 45 and had uh, a wonderful nine years leading the firm. And then I became much more engaged in broader societal issues and global health and education and philanthropy in many different ways. So I felt I was leading a very productive and in a way charmed life. I mean... Uh, till all this happened. So do you think you should have retired and maybe this would never have happened? What do you look at as a regret in your life? Well, there are many small regrets in this thing. This this thing happened when a lot of circumstances confluenced. Uh, I mean, this, the simplest one is I had resigned from the Goldman Board in 2008 and uh, the resignation was accepted. The press release was drafted and it was going to go out and then they turned around and said no no please don't resign now because Lehman was going bankrupt and so on said we don't want people to think one of our board members is resigning and so on and if I had stuck with my decision to resign none of this would have happened so there is an element of destiny in all this you know I had retired from the firm. I was more, I was spending more than half my time in philanthropic endeavors anyway. So also destiny, Raj Rajaratnam meeting him. How would you describe Raj Rajaratnam? I would say he was, you know, now there is a lot of revisionist history, but in those days he was uh, an extraordinary success in Wall Street. He was considered to be a very smart, very bright trader. Before I invested with him, I actually checked with uh, Hank Paulson, who is a very dear friend for many, many years, and Gary Cohn, and they came up with flying, you know, recommendations for Raj, saying he's very bright. And uh, I had seen his philanthropic side also. He was a big donor to the Indian School of Business. So I had a very good opinion of him just before I knew him by reputation. And uh, he was a very smart guy. If you could change one thing about your relationship with him, what would it be? It would be that I wouldn't so fully trust him. You know, I invested $10 million with him without a signature. I mean, I didn't even have the... I thought he was a very trustworthy guy. And anyway, he was, you know, very rich. Why would he do anything 
out of the ordinary for me, you know. So, yeah, I would I would change that. I would have said, okay, we are co-signers. We, we he owned eighty percent, I own twenty percent. I said, fine, but you know, some control. Now I want to go to uh, the time of the trial. There are a few key pieces of evidence. One being a wiretap of a conversation you had with Raja Ratnam, where you confirmed a rumor that Goldman might buy a commercial bank. The prosecutors call that a tip. Well, firstly, it was not any insider information in the sense it was not market moving information. It was not even confidential information. The market already knew about it. Goldman Sachs executives themselves talked to the market about it. It was a conversation that was had at a board meeting a month before uh, that recording. And uh, there was no, no, no trading based on that. So it was like, you know, this was well-known information. Okay. Uh, the context of it was a board meeting where, if you remember those times, basically there was discussion always about who should merge with whom and there were companies in trouble and so on and so forth. And we had a strategy discussion at the board where there was every candidate discussed. Should Goldman you know, acquire some, you know, a whole bunch of different candidates or they should merge with somebody, etc. And this was information that the Goldman executives conveyed to the marketplace. And the context of this conversation was that Raj Ratnam was having a meeting with Gary Cohn, who was the president of Goldman. Raj Ratnam was one of the biggest clients of Goldman, had prime brokerage accounts. Okay, I was trying to make sure that, I always used to tell Raj, Goldman is an extraordinary, outstanding institution because he was worried about everybody going bankrupt and he was going to move his money to Europe, the prime brokerage accounts. I said, no, don't do that. Goldman will be the last bank standing. They're the smartest bank. And so this was to kind of prepare him. He called me, by the way. I didn't call him. So it wasn't like I was trying to give him a tip. He called me, said, I'm having a meeting with Gary Cohn tomorrow. Can you tell me? And he said, I heard Goldman is going to, you know, thinking of, it's like everybody was thinking of merging with everybody else. And it was not confidential information. Even if you weren't trying to give him information, was he trying to get information? Not in that instance, because he was really preparing for a meeting with Gary Cohn. He was wanted to be, you know, appear smart with Gary. And, and Gary wanted to make sure he kept him as a client. So as a Goldman board member, I should, this is a big client. I should make sure that he and Goldman get along well. Let's go to the piece of testimony, which might be the biggest piece of evidence against you. There was testimony that you call Raja Ratnam's office right before the market closed on September 23rd, 16 seconds after the Goldman board discussed Warren Buffett investing in the company, which was big news. And it led to frantic calls in Raja Ratnam's office to sell Goldman stock. Do you remember that call? I don't remember actually talking to him, but I can give you the context, which I don't think came out at the trial, nor will the prosecutors accept it. In the morning, I called Raj Ratnam because by that time we had a falling out and he had taken out some money in the investment we had made and I'd been trying to get some documents from him. Well, he kept promising the documents but would never deliver. And that morning I called him and said, my bankers need these documents. Please send it to my office today. At, you know, 3.34 or whatever, when, just before... The board meeting finished. I called my secretary, not him. I called my secretary and said, has Raj Ratnam sent the documents? And she said, no. I said, get me Raj. 
And I actually don't remember whether I talked to Raj at that time or not. It was a very short call. I may have talked to him or may not have talked to him. But I do remember in the records seeing that at 6 o'clock, I uh, had called Raj to say, uh, I need to catch up with you. So that leads me to believe maybe we never talked because the call, it was not recorded, but there was a call duration was 39 seconds or something. So I called my secretary, my secretary called his secretary. I don't know whether I actually talked to him. But another thing you got to remember is that the Goldman stock started moving up from one o'clock onwards. One o'clock was the time when the board meeting was scheduled. So obviously, you know, it was known in the marketplace somewhere that there was an extraordinary board meeting happening. And, you know, he must have been watching the tape. I, I have no idea where he got the information from. But certainly, certainly not me. So the jury didn't get to hear your full explanation for this because no. you didn't take the stand. Why didn't you take the stand? Well, it's a complicated story because I've been trying to reconstruct in my mind my state of mind. I, I wanted to testify. I always maintained I wanted to testify. And I was telling my lawyers all the time. We told the court I was going to testify. The trial went on and my lawyers were always against it and just weren't preparing me for the testimony. I would have thought I would be the most important witness. They should prepare me. They should prepare me for the cross-examination that would come and so on. But no. Trial dragged on. The government took three whole weeks and I thought the trial wasn't going well. The judge was ruling against us. The prosecution was continuously harping on a false narrative all the time. Because in insider trading, you got to show that actual information was passed, insider information, that there was real benefit, and that there was criminal intent. And they didn't have proof for anything other than some circumstantial evidence regarding the first point. They had no proof of any benefit. In fact, they acknowledged. However, they kept putting innuendo on it, saying, oh, I own 15% of Galleon International, etc. Coming back to your original question, by three weeks, I was feeling really down. And... You know, I also, before the trial, I talked to Frank Quattrone. He said, whatever you do, don't testify. Because, you know, listen to your lawyers. I didn't listen to mine. I lost my first trial. I listened to them second time. I won it. So, you know, I said, these are professionals. You know, I, when I serve clients, you know, I expect them to listen to me. So I said I should listen to the lawyers. And by the way, it was combination of that. But still, I was very keen to testify, but... I was beaten down by that time. Now, when the jury came back, they deliberated for about 10 hours. And when they came back, some of the jurors were actually crying. So what did you feel when you heard their verdict? You know, the, I, I think many members of the jury did not want to convict me. But they almost had no choice, given the instructions that the judge gave, which was quite bizarre. I mean, for example, he said... Uh, well, the benefit doesn't have to be anything real. It could be just friendship. That doesn't make any real sense in, in, in law, but I guess that was the interpretation. Or he said circumstantial evidence is just as good as direct evidence because they had no recordings that, you know, they recorded Rajatnam for 18 months. There was not a single recording, my passing him any information. There were no emails. There were no witnesses. So maybe... I didn't say anything or do anything. I mean, you know, it's a bizarre thing. Where is the motive? I had boardroom secrets with me for 40 years. There was never an issue throughout in my entire career. 
how is it that suddenly I would think of another thing related to Rajaratnam case? There were maybe 22 convictions or something like that. Every one of them had a quid pro quo, had an arrangement with Raj and got specific benefit, money or whatever, right? How is it that I'm the only informant of his who has no, no arrangement? So what went through your mind when you heard the jury verdict? I, by that time, was resigned to the jury verdict. They acquitted me on two of the charges which were completely made up by the prosecution, added later on, had no even shred of evidence. The jury asked the question Do we, of the judge when they were deliberating, oh, do we have to convict him on conspiracy? And the judge replied, well, if there is an instance, then you have to convict him of conspiracy, which was bizarre because they, they, they looked at me and they said, this guy couldn't have done it, but we can't find him innocent. You're very critical of the judge, Judge Jed Rakoff, who was considered one of the best judges in the country. You had one of the best defense attorneys, Gary Neftalis, but you're very critical of the legal system and the judge's rulings and the prosecution. Do you think you got a fair trial? I absolutely believe I did not get a fair trial. Um, Let me give you one or two instances. They kept saying that I owned 15% of Galleon International. This was absolutely untrue. And they knew it because they looked after, looked through every, all my financial accounts, all my banking accounts, all my taxes, etc. They examined all of Galleon's books, Galleon's international books. The Galleon president testified that I was not involved with Galleon International. Yet they kept saying I owned 15% of Galleon International. I don't expect the government to lie boldfacedly in the court. Okay. Then, when I lost the trial, after that, when appeal memos were filed, and we demonstrated in the trial that there was no ownership, nothing, they still asserted in the appeals memo saying that he owned, that was the benefit, he owned 15% of Galleon International. When I see that, I say, the prosecutors, this is all about winning. It's not about finding, searching the truth. It's all about winning at any cost. Did you feel that the judge's rulings were deliberately against you? I don't know about deliberately. I, I, I don't want to, you know, let me give you another example. Raj Ratnam had another actual source inside Goldman. Okay, He was recorded giving inside information to Raj Ratnam. Not about Goldman, but about other companies. Two interesting observations. Judge Rakoff ruled that he could not be allowed as a witness. And there were phone calls from him on the same days as my phone calls to Raj. He had the phone calls. He was an established source. And yet we cannot call him as a witness. It didn't make any sense to us. Then the prosecutors never pursued him. I mean, here's a direct evidence of his giving inside information. And they did not pursue him. So you felt after the trial was over that the whole process had been unfair to you? Yes, what about the sentencing? Judge Rakoff was lenient with you according to the guidelines. He gave you two years. He could have given you eight to ten. Right. And he read every single one of the hundreds of letters that you had sent. Did you feel that he was fair with the sentencing? Uh, I think he was fair with the sentencing. Um, he was very different at the sentencing. You know, he started off by saying, of course, that he had read. There were 400-plus letters. He said in his entire judicial career... 
He had never seen anyone with that kind of support ever. So he was uh, very taken by that, I think. And he gave me a lighter sentence than what he could have. Um, I very much appreciated that from him, but that doesn't change how I was treated at the trial. Um, yes, I, w I was very appreciative because a two-year sentence and a 10-year se sentence are very different. When you say treated at the trial, do you mean the evidence that came in or were the prosecutors mean to you in any respect? Because the chief prosecutor has said that he had a lot of respect for you as a person. No, no, I don't think they were mean to me or anything. I, I, what I'm saying is that, firstly, I should have never been charged. They didn't have the evidence, right? Second was that they constructed a story and they used tactics, like I said, charging me before Raj Ratnam's trial. So to create a public, they, they fought the trial in the media, first at Raj Ratnam's trial, then in the media. So by the time my trial came around, I mean, the public opinion was already against me. Let's turn a little bit to Preet Bharara, who was the U.S. attorney at the time. You are very critical of Preet Bharara in the book. What's your take on him? I, I am I'm critical of Preet Bharara, not just saying Preet Bharara, but I think this is unfortunately one of the issues with the justice system. The incentives are misaligned. Most of the prosecutors, many of the prosecutors, I shouldn't say most, are political animals. They have political ambitions. And their you know, yardstick of success is wins instead of truth. I'm critical of Preet Bharara in the same extent as I see many prosecutors do the same thing. Just overreach. There was no evidence. There was no case. Second, this was purely diversionary as far as I can concern. The financial crisis, which was a real crisis, you know, where thousands and thousands of people on the main street lost jobs, lost their pension accounts, lost everything. And all the prosecutor's office did was to create fines for banks which the shareholders paid, the executives kept all their bonuses and everything else, and the banks all admitted wrongdoing, and in fact even fraud, and yet no management person was held accountable. No CEO was held accountable. How can that be? And should he be going after, I'm not condoning hedge fund insider trading, but, but you know, I mean, look at this is the biggest financial crisis the country has had in, you know, more than half a century. And yet we have not brought anybody to real account. Your time in prison, you seem to have used it well. You saw Raja Ratnam. It's, it's sort of bizarre that you saw yeah, him in prison. Yeah, yeah. Did I he mean, ever apologize <clears throat> to you? No, he didn't. But because He's not an apologizing type. I told him that you're the reason I'm here. And he could have said sorry, but he didn't. But I didn't. Uh, you know, he's not the apologizing type, but uh, I saw him there. Uh, I am generally a very forgiving person. You know, he had a long sentence. He was not looking particularly well. I have a lot of empathy for him. Also, he, you know, was offered five years off if he testified against me, and he refused to take that. He said, I have nothing, nothing to say about R Rajat. And, um, you know, I, that shows backbone and, and strength of character in some ways. And, uh, but you said something about the prison which I want to, sure. want to correct, which is that 
while I by and large coped with it well, but I was in solitary confinement for eight weeks. And for the flimsiest of infractions, and no infraction at all, actually. And if there is an example of, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, it's how the prison system is managed. And, uh, you know, they, under the UN Charter, solitary confinement beyond two weeks is equivalent to torture. And um, they kept me there for seven weeks at one time, seven weeks. And you would think that solitary confinement would be a very quiet place, you know, and there's nobody, you know, in individual cells is exactly the opposite because people are banging on doors and kicking doors, and they're going crazy inside. They're going crazy. And they're shouting and screaming, and it was the noisiest place in the prison. And they do this willy-nilly. They do this, not only did it to me, no reason at all, and uh, they do it to many others. And that should be highlighted. It seems like the biggest regret that you have is not taking the stand. When you look back, is that your biggest regret? Sure. Yes, it is. So you still think you could have convinced the jury, perhaps? Perhaps. I, I, I can't, you know, um, I don't think it was an even playing field. They, they had it stacked against me. But I should have tried my best. This was a decision I took. Mm-hmm. And uh, therefore, I cannot say that I did my very best. I did. I fought the appeals and all that. But I sort of, I don't know what happened to me. I just kind of froze and didn't testify. Thanks so much for coming in. That's Rajat Gupta. His book is called Rajat Gupta, Mine Without Fear. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.